Good afternoon, and welcome to our policy forum, What to Do About North Korea. My name is Ted Galen Carpenter. I'm Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. I think it's safe to say that North Korea has a reputation of being uh, one of the uh, country that's ruled by a regime that is uh, especially brutal, especially repressive. The country also has a reputation of being uh, the most opaque of any political system around the world. I've been at Cato now for uh, 25 years, and it seems like every few years we have a North Korean crisis to address. Uh, I certainly remember during the uh, early and mid-1990s the first nuclear crisis involving North Korea. And here we are again, uh, involved in grave concerns about that country, punctuated a few weeks ago with the uh, sinking of a South Korean naval vessel, the Cheonan, an incident that the South Koreans concluded after a detailed investigation was due to a North Korean torpedo. The North Korean government, of course, has denied that. And the U.N. Security Council just uh, earlier this week, or late last week, I should say, passed a resolution condemning the sinking of the Cheonan, but without specifically naming North Korea, a compromise that was apparently achieved at the insistence of China and perhaps China and Russia. So North Korea has been seen for a very long time as a major foreign policy problem for the United States and a major problem for the East Asian region. But there is a good deal of fulmination about North Korea, not a whole lot in terms of creative ideas about how to deal with that difficult regime headed by Kim Jong-il. We have today an especially uh, able panel to uh, discuss North Korea and some policy options for dealing with that country. Our first speaker this afternoon will be Dr. Stephen W. Linton, who grew up in Korea, where his father was a third-generation Southern Presbyterian missionary. He was a visiting associate of the Korea Institute at Harvard University, and he is currently the chairman of the Eugene Bell Foundation, an organization that provides humanitarian assistance, especially medical aid, to North Korea. Dr. Linton's work has also included 30 years of teaching and research on Korea, some 20 years of travel to North Korea, including over 50 trips since 1979, which puts him in a very select group indeed. In addition, uh, some 11 years of humanitarian aid work in North Korea. Dr. Linton received a Bachelor of Arts degree from Yonsei University in Seoul, Korea, a Master's of Divinity from Korea Theological Seminary, and a Master's of Philosophy and a Ph.D. in Korean Studies from Columbia University. 
Our second speaker is Karen J. Lee, who has been the executive director of the National Committee on North Korea since February 2006. That committee uh, creates opportunities for thoughtful dialogue about North Korea among experts from a wide range of backgrounds and experiences with the effort to foster greater understanding in the United States about North Korea. In her previous position as the senior fellow for the East Asia Policy Education Project of the Friends Committee on National Legislation, Karen briefed and educated congressional staff and members with a special emphasis on North Korea. She also facilitated dialogue between humanitarian organizations and policymakers regarding humanitarian aid, human rights, and refugees in North Korea. Final speaker is my colleague, Doug Bondo. Doug he is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties issues. Before coming to Cato, he worked as a special assistant to President Reagan and an editor of a of high quality but now unfortunately defunct political magazine, Inquiry. He writes regularly for numerous leading publications such as Fortune Magazine, The National Interest, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Times. And if his face looks familiar, it's because he has been a regular commentator on just about all of the major news networks, including ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox News Channel, and MSNBC. Doug is also uh, the author of uh, several important books, including Tripwire, Korea and U.S. Foreign Policy in a Changed World, Foreign Follies, America's New Global Empire, and he is the co-author with a very, very smart co-author <laughs> of a book, The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea. And his most recent publication is a Cato Institute study, The U.S.-South Korea Alliance, Outdated, Unnecessary, and Dangerous. We're going to have a lively discussion today. I hope you all enjoy it. Our first speaker, Stephen Linton. Thank you, Ted. I really appreciate uh, the invitation uh, that uh, Cato has given me to make this presentation. Doug has been a friend for a long time. And I, I'm going to, at the end of my presentation, actually uh, show a vis video, if I could, uh, at, uh, after making a few brief remarks. Actually, uh, I, some of you picked up our brochures. It is very bad policy when you're trying to raise money to pick an argument. Uh, but uh, uh, in the spirit of Cato, uh, both the uh, present and the original, uh, I thought I would try to do that uh, just to provoke perhaps uh, a, a little bit different dialogue about North Korea. I had a professor at Columbia, uh, Gary Ledger, who used to lament that after 
a lifetime of studying Korea, still, for the U.S., uh, Korea is primarily a problem rather than a country. Uh, and at the time he said this, uh, it didn't make a lot of sense to me because as someone who has spent most of his life in Korea, uh, it, I have a hard time thinking of Korea just as a problem. Uh, but uh, I learned what that meant uh, in the 80s uh, when I was uh, teaching on the faculty at Columbia uh, when a student from Korea came to me uh, who was doing some research in, in uh, the U.S. She uh, was uh, in the U.S. for the first time. And whether she, deliberately or otherwise, uh, she had been uh, selected uh, as, a, she was a very much a radical in the 80s. And if any of you know modern Korean history, you know that the 80s was full of very radical uh, students. And she came into my office and she was very, very frustrated. And finally she blurted out, I came to the U.S. to grab somebody by the throat. <laughs> and I can't find anyone. Uh, now, what was her problem? Uh, it was a fascinating statement. Her problem wasn't that this was just her first visit to the U.S. Her problem was that she had an, idea, an excessively ideological construct of the world uh, and that her experience of the U.S. Uh, shattered it. Uh, it's what David Hume might have called a world inversion, where someone adopts an ideology and then begins to interpret the entirety of reality through that particular ideological construct. Now, may I make a point? It occurs to me that perhaps one of our problems, and not all of our problems, obviously, but one of our problems with North Korea is that we may have ideological constructs that are not particularly helpful and seem to come crashing down uh, when they ultimately are confronted uh, with reality. Let's back up a minute. Actually, the introduction was an old one. I have to change that. Uh, I've been traveling to North Korea for th 31 years now, <laughs> and I think uh, my visits are getting close to 70. It's not something to be proud of. But uh, that's the fact is, though, that as long as I have been in this field, North Korea has been coming to the U.S., and offering some kind of relationship. Now, here is a very small, relatively weak country coming to a much, much stronger, some would argue the uh, world's uh, only superpower, uh, asking for a, a client-type relationship. That fact hit me like a ton of bricks in 1979. And I can testify to you that to this very day, although the terms of engagement obviously have changed quite a bit, North Korea is still, in some sense, looking for a positive relationship with the United States. How did we happen to blow it? How did we happen to stand 30 years later, not only without that relationship, but uh, arguably in a worse position than we were when we started? Did our own ideological constructs have something to, uh, to do with that? And without going into uh, a lot of detail or pointing a lot of fingers, it's for someone who does North Korea uh, and doesn't spend as much time perhaps as he should in, in Washington, <clears throat> I try to find sort of simple ways to understand the dialogue in North, about North Korea in Washington. There are considerable numbers of people, they were even more under the Clinton administration, who, who somehow felt that carrots would work. 
um, it was almost like the Unification Church notion of love bombing the North Koreans. If you love bomb them, they'll be overwhelmed with your sincerity and good intentions and change. On the other hand, there are people who, who, who thought that sticks would work, sort of fear bombing them. If you, if you intimidate, if you make enough uh, threatening noises and, and apply enough sanctions that somehow North Korea's would work. I think both of these constructs, and I, obviously I have oversimplified them, have, as that student in Colombia, have come face to face with reality and shattered. And North Korea is neither going to be <clears throat> guiled into doing something it thinks is against its natural interest, nor is it going to be threatened. And the sooner we get away from that kind of a simplistic approach, uh, the better. And I think one of the ways we can start to build a more realistic uh, framework for understanding North Korea is to go back and look at at least modern Korean history. Uh, in, in, 19, in, in 2012, we'll be celebrating, or at least the North Koreans will be celebrating, the 100th anniversary of Kim Il-sung's birth. And I would not argue that North Korean history began on that day that the Titanic sank. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, it, clearly he played a key role. I would rather date the ideological and the, the foundational elements of North Korean society as having been laid uh, during the March 1st movement in 1919 when the Japanese brutally suppressed unarmed demonstrators who were demonstrating for Korean national sovereignty and freedom under, from the Japanese colonial uh, rule. Uh, during that time, uh, there was a significant shift in the history of Korean nationalism. And in a sense, one of the, the biggest shifts was a shift away from a Christian-inspired gradualist approach to national liberation, a, an irenic, if you please, self-betterment approach that would eventually result in national liberation, a shift away from that to a much more radical and violent approach, uh, the approach uh, of, of Marxism. Actually, Kim Il-sung's family was probably part of the people who made this shift, or at least certain members of it. We certainly know that his, his family had a very a strong connection uh, to the Protestant church. Uh, he told Billy Graham in uh, 1992 in my presence that uh, he had never had a chance or he had never had the time to give Christianity serious thought because he was too concerned about national liberation. <clears throat> and if you might say... He decided to forego a, 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 a program for uh, individual salvation for what he considered uh, essential for national salvation or national survival. Then what happened in North Korea when Kim Il-sung did come to power in 1948? As most of you probably know, North Korea underwent a fundamental social reorganization uh, and it made rapid progress, especially in its uh, military armament. And it risked all on reunifying Korea by force in 1950. In other words, uh, the Marxist regime was willing to put everything on the line for what it considered the key to Korean national survival, and that was the reunification of Korea. And they lost. 
they did this, and they will tell you time and time again because they believe even today that in the long run, Korea's survival as an independent state requires uh, some kind of national reunification. What happened in the 60s? They sprinted ahead again of the South. And uh, actually, for me, it was uh, the, early six, uh, the late 60s and early 70s was a very exciting period. North Korea sprinted again in, the, in the, the 60s, but by the end of the 60s, its economy was beginning to slowly lose the race with South Korea. Very interesting. And to me, this is the most interesting period because this is also the period when North Korea uh, 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 did a lot of the things that uh, it is being held accountable to for uh, accountable for now uh, by the international community. Its nuclear program started in this period. It, uh, it uh, kidnapped Japanese uh, citizens primarily during this period. But more than that, uh, North Korea went, uh, as its economy was losing steam, uh, North Korea went on a, on a campaign to export ideology, not only export revolution to South Korea, and I was in South Korea, and the North Korean guerrillas would be landed in, on the coasts, and they would be fighting the police in the mountains. It was very exciting for me as an adolescent to follow this especially because uh, some guerrillas came through one of the uh, summer camps that we used to use as a missionary kid, as missionaries. Uh, but they were not only trying to export uh, revolution to the south, they were also trying to export Chuche's philosophy uh, to the third world, and at great expense. In other words, North Korea was at that particular point attempting to export an ideology it believed would, would be the end of, of history, uh, would, would bring the world into a, a, a worker's paradise. And there's a, there's a dissertation lurking there somewhere, I think, and I, I'm not trying to be too facetious, in terms of when countries begin to become primarily ideological in their foreign policy uh, and its relationship to their, uh, to their economic state. I think that people would argue that at least apparently uh, – U.S. interest in exporting ideology has risen even while it is lost, is losing its economic competitiveness. But I'll leave that for someone else to parse. Uh, so North Korea went through this period. I'm almost finished. And um, what has happened since then? What has happened since then is far less interesting, at least to me, and that is North Korea has been, has been uh, focused on its national survival. One way or another, it wants to survive. And it has given up its ideological uh, programs for, for export and is focused primarily on building uh, real political relationships and, and diplomatic relationships that will allow it to survive. And my, my argument is simply this. What have we offered the North Koreans? Have we offered them? I mean, here's a country that was, in a sense, born with a concern for national survival, did have a, a very brief period of ideological export, but has been back at the game of national survival since at least the, the 80s. Uh, what are we really offering them? Are we offering them national survival, or are we offering them another extreme makeover? 
according to an ideology that would in a sense negate most of what they consider their primary gains in the last 50 years. I would argue that we have offered them uh, a program that at least to a North Korean does not compete, compute as, as national survival. Whereas China, whereas China understands this quite well and is offering the North Koreans uh, a program, perhaps fewer carrots, but certainly one that is fortified with a lot more uh, coherent and tangible uh, uh, national survival than perhaps the one the West has been offering them. And we can discuss that later. Then what would I do with, about North Korea? Very briefly. The irony of it, and this is also another uh, interesting characteristic, I think, uh, that emerges at least from the study of North Korea, is that in combating con North Korea, often nations act like North Korea not in a negative sense, but in a strategic or a, st a structural sense. In other words, uh, in combating uh, North Korea, the South Korean government, although it is a pluralistic society, it has huge civilian sector uh, resources, it has, it has an enormous private sector uh, pool of wealth. Nevertheless, Nor South Korea tries to approach North Korea the way North Korea approaches South Korea, by funneling everything through government ministries, by strangling, in a sense, or denying its private sector full participation. To an extent, the U.S. does the same with sanctions. We don't allow our private sector to engage North Korea. And I would argue that a free society's strength is not in its government. It's in its private sector. And when, you, when, it, when a free society tries to funnel everything through government uh, initiatives and government ministries, uh, you have, you have a, 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 a weakening uh, uh, rather than a strengthening of the process. Uh, Eugene Bell, the Eugene Bell Foundation, to get to my video, I'm trying to get this under time here, uh, is an effort that was initiated by Korean Americans to engage North Korea on a private sector level. And I think it gives an, an, a very brief idea of what it might be like if, in fact, the U.S. private sector uh, could also engage uh, North Korea, particularly its Korean-American population, and uh, could engage North Korea on an individual basis without the con constructions and the, con and the conditions that are imposed upon it today. Uh, Eugene Bell has been doing uh, humanitarian aid in North Korea for the last 15 years, and we actually uh, deal with about a third of North Korea's, or we have till recently, a third of North Korea's uh, tuberculosis patients, which is, is its primary medical concern, and in the last three years have shifted over uh, to, uh, to uh, multi-drug resistance. And so... Uh, to allow our other speakers uh, sufficient time, I would like to just run this video to give you an idea of what we do, and then I'll, I'll sit down. Can we... Uh, how do we get this going here? Is, is there someone in the, in the back? Who, Harbor in early May. Here, Eugene Bell staff and volunteers are preparing for a visit to North Korea by a Eugene Bell delegation. These are the first steps for helping patients with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, 
You can feel the urgency and enthusiasm. A visit to North Korea's northwestern region, which includes South Pyongan Province, North Pyongan Province, Pyongyang City, and Nampo City, typically takes 14 days. Despite careful preparations, the delegation's visit proved to be a challenge. A vehicle became stuck on a narrow, muddy road. managed to pull the vehicle out of the ditch. The hospitality and enthusiastic help from good-natured volunteers encouraged us to press onward. When the delegation arrived at the newly designated MDRTB treatment facility, it was met by a crowd of anxious patients. 어, 여러분들을 그 만나고 싶은 이유가 몇 가지가 있어요. 저도 결핵 생활, 환자 생활을 3년 했습니다. 다제 내성 약이 더 좋다고 생각하거든요. 사실이 아닙니다. 1차 약이 훨씬 나아요. 효과도 빠르고 부작용도 적습니다. 문제는 선생님들 몸속에는 지금 1차 약을 이겨내는 균들이 지금 들어가 있습니다. 희망을 가지려면은 부작용이 훨씬 세고 효과가 떨어진 2차 약을 드셔야 됩니다. 몸속의 균들이 다 1차 약을 우습게 보니까 이제는 잇몸으로 씹듯이 2차 약밖에 안 남았습니다. Multi-drug resistant tuberculosis is a fearsome disease which cannot be treated with regular tuberculosis drugs. Therefore, it requires special medications, which takes longer and has serious side effects. After weighing patients and collecting sputum samples, Eugene Bell representatives return to South Korea where the specimens are analyzed and individualized prescriptions are prepared for each patient. Sputum analysis and the purchase of medications can take months. Consequently, pictures of each patient are an important part of making sure the patients get the medication that is right for them. Generous donor has provided a mobile digital X-ray vehicle employing the latest technology. This unit will make screening patients more systematic and precise. We met a patient receiving MDRTB medicine from Eugene Bell for the first time. Among the patients waiting for medicine, we saw a familiar face. 
아이고 이게 오늘은 우수 때는 우시였는데 오늘은 우수 날이네요. 네, 스님들이 많이 후원해 주셔서 많이 나갔습니다. 그래요? 예. This is Myungwar Kim, whom the delegation met last autumn. Miss Kim, a doctor herself, is obviously much healthier after six months of medication. 약을 먹게 돼서 제가 이렇게 많이 퍼준데서 이렇게 스승님들 앞에 어느 우는 얼굴이 아니라 우는 얼굴로 서게 되었습니다. 감사합니다. 그렇게 잘 전하고 어쨌든 계속 한 알도 빠짐없이 계속 드시길 바랍니다. 네, 스승님이 그 일성 물어볼까 그 국을 생각했으라도 더 열심히 먹겠습니다. 고맙습니다. 해주시고 Even though they breathe with difficulty, patients here can dream of making a full recovery due to support through Eugene Bell. The fifth day of the visit. The delegation made its way to the children's ward of the South Pyongan Province Tuberculosis Hospital. The children here, whose ages range from 1 to 10, are quarantined and under treatment. Among the young patients was a familiar face. 안녕하세요. 이름이 뭐죠? 임수정입니다. 예. 근데 전에 만났을 때 어디가 아팠었어요? 기침이 당할 때 여기가 아팠습니다. 아, 근데 지금은 어때요? 일 없습니다. 일 진짜 일 없어요? 예. 예. 수정이 어린이 약 갖고 왔는데 그약 굉장히 쓰거든요. 그래도 잘 먹어야 돼요. 예. 알았죠? 예. 수정, 수정, who gave us a sputum sample last time, promised to take her medications faithfully. 예. 약잘 드셔요? 예. 예. 아파서 왔어요 여기? 예. 어디가 아파요? 임파결핵입니다. 임파결핵. 엄마 아빠는 어디 있어요? 집에 있습니다. 엄마 아빠 안 보고 싶어요? 예. 안 보고 싶어요? 오, 엄마 아빠가 서운하겠네. 안 보고 싶다니까. 언제 여기 들어왔었죠? Despite being quarantined and receiving treatment away from his parents, you know's awkward behavior lightened everyone's mood. 말할 수 있어요? 네. 몇 살이에요? 14살입니다. 어디가 아파요, 지금요? 임파그레가고 참. The sight of 14-year-old Yerin's lesions left everyone speechless. Eugene Bell will keep trying its best so that Yerin and children like her, who should be happily playing outside, can get well. Later, the delegation visited a school where children were being given physical examinations with equipment provided by another donor. The children appeared nervous at the sight of the medical equipment, but in their sparkling eyes, we could see a healthier future for the North Korean people.
이번에 큰 발전들이 많이 있었어요. 가재 내성 환자들 집중적으로 센터에서 치료하게 됐고요. 그리고 약 복용하는 것도 훨씬 더 규칙적으로 하고 있는 것 같습니다. 이동 검진차도 이제는 활용할 수 있고 이동 건물들까지 보내주셔서 병동들에서 환자들이 훨씬 더 치료가 잘될 겁니다. 다 여러분들의 사랑 때문이죠. 유진벨 대표로 다시 한번 감사의 인사를 드리고 싶습니다. 정말 고맙습니다. 앞으로도 계속 이 사업에 관심을 가져주셨으면 그리고 계속 기도 좀 해주셨으면 감사하겠습니다. 혹시 여기 기타 주십니까? 네. 어느 분이 기타 여기 분이 한번 쳐보시죠. 한번 어디 음악회좀 One MTR TV patient played the guitar for the visiting delegation. 我觉得这个非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演讲，非常好的演
rule of sanctions that has been taught is that sanctions are part are, are tactic they're not a policy in and of themselves and i think that the obama administration and the south korean government have been uh, complimented by some observers for their tactics, but there's uh, an overall question of where's the strategy? What comes, we know that, that, that you are seeking this step, and we kind of know what your second step is, but what's your third step? I think we definitely see that in the response to the Chonan incident in which there seems to be no exit strategy uh, beyond measures taken in response to the Chonan um, incident. Costs to the sending nation are a very important part of uh, a sanctions regime. China is often criticized for not doing enough to make sanctions against the DPRK really effective. Well, guess what? Every sanctions regime has someone who's willing to break the regime for their own economic interests. In Iraq, for example, Jordan weakened the sanctions regime because of continuing to pursue trade with Iraq. When we talk about why China won't engage entirely uh, in a sanctions regime against the DPRK, people talk about the fact that China wants to remain stability, wants to retain stability in the DPRK. But there's another reason, and that's their own economic interest. For sanctions to be successful, the sending nation has to have economic Uh, relations with the country that it is willing to sacrifice in order for the sanctions to be effective. So the U.S., of course, is perfectly happy to have a sanctions regime against the DPRK because it sacrifices absolutely nothing economically, whereas China does have to make sacrifices in order for the economic sanctions to be effective. What we have right now is a very interesting new development, and that is that South Korea is making an economic sacrifice in response to the Chonan incident. And it will be interesting to see whether or not South Korea is able to sustain this economic sacrifice. A recent Chosun Ilbo report says that business people engaged in Northern, North Korean projects say they will be ruined if trade does not resume soon. So let's say that South Korea listens to its people and that trade is uh, restarted again. The question then is, how can the United States continue to criticize China if it chooses not to engage uh, in sanctions against the DPRK for its economic loss if it doesn't also choose to criticize South Korea if, in fact, it makes this decision? The one time that the United States successfully changed the balance sheet for China on sanctions against the DPRK was Banco Delta Asia, which was a financial sanction, not an economic sanction. But at that time, in September 2005, when the Treasury Department named Banco Delta Asia as a financial institution of primary money laundering concern, It made clear to China that the entire rating of its financial system was at stake and that if uh, China did not take moves to isolate BDA, Banco Delta Asia, that there would be consequences to its own ability to do business. 
At that time, however, China and the United States were cooperating together much more closely on policy towards the DPRK. I'm not entirely convinced that financial sanctions like that could be successful again right now, particularly when U.S. policy has backed North, uh, China into North Korea's corner in relation to um, responses to the Chonan. Uh, if there's someone from the Treasury Department here who wants to talk about what might be on the table, of course, I hope that uh, Dr. Carpenter would be willing to invite them right up. We could hear what the future might hold. But here's the real thing. Even if you got everybody to do the exact right thing with economic sanctions, success doesn't succeed. You don't necessarily get the political outcome that is being sought when you bring a country to its knees economically. So, for example, um, in uh, Serbia Montenegro, sanctions were so effective that industrial output dropped by 40%, retail sales fell by 70%, and 60% of the industrial labor, labor force was laid off. And what happened? Nothing. You got a rally around the flag effect, and Serbia Montenegro continued its uh, uh, bellicose activities. So I think that uh, when we're pushing China and we're looking for an airtight sanctions regime, we have to realize that uh, even if we got China to absolutely do the United States bidding, it might not get us anywhere. One of the most important lessons learned from sanctions against Iraq was the lessons of unintended, unintended consequences. And what you'll see up there on the PowerPoint slide is an estimate of how many children under the age of five died as a result of uh, sanctions against Iraq in the years 91 to 98. Uh, the high end of the estimate is 170,250. As a result of the lessons learned from uh, Iraq, an international consensus developed that sanctions should be very carefully crafted to avoid negative consequences on ordinary people. Right now, the South Korean government is standing outside that international consensus by making it impossible for privately funded South Korean NGOs to deliver assistance to the DPRK and make monitoring visits to oversee the distribution of that assistance. Now, you might have seen some newspaper articles saying that a minimal amount of milk powder had been delivered. Uh, I believe that that's true, but I believe that the situation still stands, that the bulk of the South Korean NGOs with programs in the DPRK are unable to uh, carry on their business. Um, if Dr. Linton has some comments on that, uh, of course, I would, I would welcome them. But this is a lesson that was learned the hard way with the deaths of innocent people, and I would expect that South Korean government to come back inside the international consensus and list that, uh, lift that ban on NGO activities as quickly as possible. I wanted to mention uh, an additional unattended consequence in the case of the DPRK. Um, this uh, uh, quotation is from Ambassador Donald Gregg and Don Oberdorfer, made in September 2006. 
they were really uh, working towards uh, uh, sustaining the relationships that people in the DPRK had made with people in the United States working effectively towards diplomatic solutions to North Korea's nuclear weapons program. Right now, the Obama administration has uh, linked visas for track to dialogue to success on the nuclear issue. This took place before the Chonan incident. Therefore, the Obama administration was saying, our levers are so weak that we are forced to use visas as a means to express our displeasure with the North Korean government. And we are forced to uh, uh, allow this kind of private sector uh, dialogue on the uh, U.S. side, on the North Korean side. Of course, there is not a private sector. But we, we are forced to stop that. I, I don't think that visa denial is an expression of strength. I think that visa denial is an expression of weakness. And I would really like to see our government develop a transparent visa policy that encourages dialogue instead of discouraging it. Now, quite obviously, uh, sanctions regimes stand or fall on whether or not sending nations are in agreement with the purpose of the sanctions. Uh, these quotations here are from Paul Conlon, who has an interesting uh, observation that uh, the first round of sanctions against Iraq were sent by nations who, in fact, most of whom had suffered invasion or attempted invasion in living memory or had had property wrested from them in the past through invasion. Thus, when Iraq uh, invaded Kuwait, all of them had this automatic empathy and sympathy, and they became quite powerful sending nations in an effort to reverse Iraq's behavior, which was, of course, unsuccessful. But at least you had most people on board then. In the case of the second wave of sanctions, rather than having this discrete goal that was easily identifiable, has it been reached, has it not been reached, you had this more amorphous goal of arms control. And as the sanctions dragged, dragged on, Colin here asserts that three of the sending nations, uh, the United States, uh, Britain, and France, kind of changed their goal to an economic warfare such that they were satisfied with the weakness uh, a weakened Iraq state as a, a satisfactory outcome because then they didn't have to worry about Iraq anymore. Now, we know that there are diverse goals uh, regarding uh, sanctions and resolutions against the DPRK. But one of the things that's really different between 1718, UN Security Council Resolution 1718 and UN Security Council, Council Resolution 1874, is that with 1718 in 2006, there was nearly a consensus that the purpose of that resolution was to bring North Korea back to the table, back to six-party talks. But with 1874, and certainly with any outcome from post-Chonan, 
I doubt that consensus is going to be there. The language is similar, but the statements made after the adoption are very different. And I would say that if you don't have agreement on the end goal, you're definitely not going to have long-term agreement on implementation. And it will be interesting to see how uh, Bob Einhorn is able to fulfill fulfill his new role. I forget what the title is now, but as the kind of... uh, uh, sanctions are with oversight responsibilities over uh, Iran and North Korea. Finally, I wanted to say that uh, another lesson learned on sanctions uh, against previous nations uh, is that, first of all, Sanctions only have almost no effect and that you have to have a combination of incentives and sanctions if you're going to produce any results. But also that uh, partial uh, compliance should be met with with partial sanctions relief. Uh, One of the might-have-beens that uh, is discussed is that in Iraq, Uh, Partial concessions to U.N. demands were made in 1993 and 1994 with Iraq accepting U.N.'s weapons monitoring on its territory and recognizing the redrawn borders with Kuwait. But the sanctions regime decided not to recognize those partial concessions, and so, uh, in fact, the sanctions were continued uh, until war took place. So the question to me right now in the handling of the Chonan incident, and this has to do with bilateral sanctions and not unilateral sanctions, but immediately uh, after the release of the report, the ROK implemented bilateral sanctions in the terms, um, in the form of things like cutting off the business uh, relations with the exception of Kaesong, and um, also... Uh, uh, closing off sea lanes so that the DPRK has more expensive transit to the sea. So the question is, and I am uh, summing up here, whether or not there's any outcome that the ROK government sees as satisfactory uh, towards, uh, that would result in lifting the sanctions uh, uh, if there is partial compliance. But unfortunately, the conversations that I had with people in the U.S. government and the South Korean government a couple of weeks ago was we're focused on New York. Once we see the outcome in New York, then we'll talk about an exit strategy. So once again, I would go back to uh, my very first comment that sanctions are not a tactic, they're an overall strategy. And so we really need to see the direction that our, our government and the South Korean government are intending to go. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> I appreciate the opportunity to uh, appear with uh, a good distinguished panel. I think... Uh, I appeared up at Columbia, Steve. I think you may have been a grad student at the time, a very early appearance talking about these issues. And I admire Karin's work. I think, you know, our hope with this forum is to discuss an issue that remains extraordinarily vexing for the United States and for countries in the region. And I appreciate all of you coming. I think the fact that an auditorium could fill up to talk about this issue, issue shows the challenge that we face. And North Korea really involves two different challenges that come together one of which is humanitarian, 
No, you, as one sees from the video that Steve showed us, the extraordinary poverty in North Korea, the suffering that is there that's evident there, to have those kinds of diseases with those kinds of facilities would be horrifying, I think, to the average American. There's also, of course, a security issue, <laughs> that uh, you know, North Korea does not play by the rules. It certainly doesn't play by America's rules or the region's rules. And, of course, there's much that we worry about with North Korea, both its nuclear program and its missile program, fears of proliferation, you know, this is a country that we don't have much uh, sense of how we can do business with it, and current policy has been uh, you know, utterly ineffectual. I think these fears today are exacerbated by the sense that, uh, you know, North Korea has long had a, a negotiating policy of brinkmanship, the question of the Chonin incident, assuming the South Koreans are correct in their assessment of uh, the sinking of the Chonin, would suggest that North Korea was willing to kind of play brinkmanship up to another level. And there are some theories that this may tie back to naval uh, skirmishing back in last fall, you know, over the uh, Yellow Sea boundary uh, dispute, a lot of you know, questions about why this might have occurred. <coughs> Nevertheless, it obviously makes, uh, you know, an unsettled situation even more dangerous. I think we also face the fact that North Korea today seems to be involved in a very uncertain uh, transition in terms of power. And I think that makes future negotiations, certainly over the next few years, potentially much more difficult. It, uh, you know, the, the dear leader would like to make his third son, Kim Jong-un, the, uh, the next dear leader, apparently. There have been uh, you know, recent party meetings. There have been mysterious disappearances, uh, you know, retirements for purpose of age of somebody in a regime that is filled with the aged. A uh, you know, mysterious car accident killing someone who uh, had a, played a significant role within the regime, a supposed heart attack here and there. You know, the question of what is going on there, we really don't know for certain. The brother-in-law appears to have cemented his power. He's now the vice chairman of the Military Defense Commission, which is the true fount of power. It's the chairman, of course, is Kim Jong-il. Nevertheless, you know, exactly what's going on, who's strong, the likelihood of this transition working, how long will the dear leader be with us you know, to try to you know, make a, a transition to power with somebody in his late 20s in Korean society is not going to be the easiest thing to do. It took uh, Kim Il-sung quite some time to really cement power for Kim Jong-il. That We could find that even if the transition to power goes smoothly, that a new potentially collective leadership or a weak new leader after the, uh, the dear leader is gone may nevertheless be quite unwilling to take on the military to make uh, you know, concessions in areas that particularly the United States and South Korea would like. And I think that adds to uh, you know, the concern of what we're facing today is that uh, at one point at least we were certain of what we were negotiating with. Kim Il-sung had been along, around for a long time before his death. But if we find uh, you know, the regime going on to the third leader, we're not quite so certain of what we're going to face. And the question is, what options do we have? Current policy hasn't delivered us much results. The North Koreans are proceeding on both nuclear and missile uh, programs. Sanctions are in place, but we get frustrated because the Chinese, as Karin mentioned, don't enforce them the way we would like. You know, one option, of course, is simply to maintain the status quo, kind of muddle along, try to get the North Koreans into the six-party talks without much of a strategy of how to get them to agree to much of anything and to enforce whatever may be agreed to, maintain sanctions without uh, you know, evident effect, and uh, try to browbeat the Chinese in doing something that we would prefer, but again, without much success there. A second option, which some people have suggested, is to basically give up and try to ignore North Korea. But that uh, seems to be a strategy that's not likely to work as well, because North, there's a reason we have a hard time uh, ignoring North Korea, and I think that's one of the reasons why North Korea is uh, building uh, nuclear weapons, is that it makes it much harder to ignore them. 
that without nuclear weapons, North Korea could be ignored. And I think Kim Jong-il understands that. The ruling establishment within North Korea certainly understands that. I think there are other issues, uh, security and other things, which impel the North towards a nuclear option. Nevertheless, they certainly understand the international dynamic. And they uh, made it very hard for the uh, Obama administration to ignore them. I think that was the initial uh, policy out of Washington after President Obama took office was to hope that North Korea as an issue could be kind of kicked down the road a little bit and not worried about. But another nuclear test, missile tests and whatnot suddenly pushed North Korea into the front pages again and forced its way onto the U.S. agenda. And I think the third strategy is to try to come up with some refashioned form of engagement and getting China involved in a more positive way. And this is something where I think Karin is absolutely right. We have a lot of tactics out there, and certainly sanctions have been a tactic, but the question is, what's our strategy? Is there an overall way to put everything together and try to move North Korea forward and forward with some kind of result, positive result with North Korea? I think, of course, there is no option out there that we know will work. I mean, let's face it, trying to deal with that regime is going to be extraordinarily difficult for a lot of reasons. Our uh, success in the past is not very good. You know, trying to pre presuming anything in the future will have the result that we want, I think, is presumptuous. Nevertheless, I think we have to try to look for some options and try to, to make some changes compared to where we're at. One of which it strikes me is that <clears throat> we should have diplomatic relations with North Korea. Whatever the rest of the issues, I see very little to gain from refusing to recognize North Korea. One of the goals for years was cross recognition. Back at a time when South Korea was not recognized by uh, either China or Russia, the idea would be, well, China and Russia would recognize the South, Japan and the U.S. would recognize the North. Well, the South, of course, has gotten all the recognitions. The North remains isolated. It's a very small price to pay, it strikes me, but what it would do is, you know, number one, provide some sense for the North Koreans of respect from the United States, and number two, give us a window into a society that remains very opaque. I mean, this is a country we desperately need to know more about. I think the second, the question of sanctions and engagement, I think that it's clearly, Steve is clearly right, that from a standpoint of trying to kind of get into North Korean society, the more people, the more people from the West who can get there have relationships, the better. I will not claim that that is enough to transform that society, that all you have to do is have economic relations, and 10 years from now, North Korea will be a democracy, you know, a parliamentary democracy a la Westminster system. Nevertheless, our current system, again, is not working. And I think there's a lot to be gained from the kind of relationships that Steve has built, certainly on the humanitarian side. I think there's a good argument for trying to separate the notion of government aid from private aid. There's a good argument the U.S. government should not be in the business of giving aid, whether it's food aid or something else, but it certainly should not stand in the way of private groups, private individuals getting involved, trying to expand that in the North. I also think it's critical to try to engage China more, and that requires recognizing that we have to convince China that it is in their interest to do so. You know, there's a tendency in Washington to say we should just tell the Chinese what to do. And we have tried that, and we have seen how well that has worked. The Chinese are not very interested in being told what to do in North Korea, and they've responded very clearly by saying they're not going to go along with our program. We have to recognize there are reasons. We may not like them, but there are a number of reasons why I think China prefers the current arrangement. It doesn't view nuclear weapons, I think, as threatening uh, China, not going to be used against China. I think it probably prefers to have, uh, not have a united pro-American uh, you know, Korea on its border with American troops. I think it's concerned about a, a messy destabilization of the North in terms of refugees, the cost, any number of things. There are a lot of reasons there, and I think as well as Karin mentioned, economic relations and others where China you know, views the present situation as better than a situation where it might promote destabilization. 
I think what we have to do is make the argument to China that the current situation actually is rather unstable. You know, there certainly are pressures in the United States, you know, for military action as long as the North is building nuclear weapons. The Chonin incident suggests the possibility of a mistake leading to war there. One could imagine tit-for-tat retaliation. One could have imagined uh, Seoul deciding to uh, retaliate in one way or another, North Korea responding, South as, as well. You know that there's always that potential there. And that I would suggest to the, uh, the Chinese that they cannot assume that a at least significant proliferation on the part of North Korea would always be met by restraint in terms of South Korea and Japan. It's not clearly in America's interest to remain in the middle of all of that if North Korea would decide to move ahead with a rather large nuclear arsenal and the U.S. might decide to step back and let the, China, let the South Koreans and the Japanese move ahead if they wanted to on nuclear weapons, and I suspect that would get Beijing's attention. To hear uh, the word Japan and nuclear weapons in the same sentence is something that's likely to uh, you know, raise some concerns within Beijing. And it, I think, would be useful to suggest to the Chinese that your responsibility for non-proliferation in the region is not only that of America or South Korea or Japan, but also that of China, and it can play a role. I also think the U.S. should indicate that it would not take advantage if things worked badly in the peninsula. That is, if there was a costly breakdown in refugees, the U.S. and uh, other countries, such as uh, South Korea and Japan, would be willing to help share that cost. Finally, the U.S. should make very clear that if there's reunification on the peninsula, there would be no U.S. troops in a reunified peninsula. That perhaps the most important issue, I think, for China, at least some Chinese analysts, there's some divergence found in terms of who you talk to. Nevertheless, the U.S. is not interested in taking geopolitical advantage. The U.S. sees no need for bases on China's border. That if, in fact, China was helpful in a way of resolving this situation, whether it be reform in the north, denuclearization, a number of outcomes one could imagine that the U.S. would be quite prepared to back off and say America's military role, therefore, is over. Indeed, in a larger sense, I think you know, it, my study picks up particularly on the U.S.-South Korean relationship, but I think this is a time for the U.S. to step back. The point is the issue of North Korea is much more an issue for China, for Japan, and South Korea, much less an issue where the U.S. has to be the determining force. The U.S. is involved primarily because it has about 29,000 troops in South Korea. Without those troops there, the U.S. suddenly would have much less interest. The U.S. would not be within uh, you know, easy reach of any kind of North Korean nuclear, uh, military action. I don't think the, new, the North Koreans are suicidal anyway. And it would also put much greater onus on countries in the region for stepping up and dealing with this issue in ways that they thought were necessary, while the U.S. could step back in a much more supportive role and suggest that it really is Seoul, Beijing, and Tokyo's responsibility to figure out the best way to try to bring a North Korea into the larger international community and resolve a situation that is both tragic in humanitarian terms and also a problem in terms of national security. Thank you very much. We have uh, about 25 minutes for audience participation. A few ground rules here. Uh, please raise your hand. Wait for me to call on you. Uh, also, please wait for the microphone to come around so that we can hear your question. And then finally, I invoke the, uh, the Jeopardy rule from that uh, famous television program. Please make your uh, comment brief and in the form of a question. Also indicate if it is directed to a particular panel member or to the panel in general. Yes, on the aisle here on the left.
Thank you, Michael Choi, uh, National Security Education Program Fellow. Dr. Linton, in your opinion, what has been the impact of U.S.-based NGOs and USAID, including RICE, medicine and educational exchanges? I've heard of one case of North Koreans visiting Syracuse University through the Korea Society. So what has been that, uh, the impact of such aid and exchanges to the minds of North Koreans, both the elite and ordinary people? And has USAID and exchanges warmed minds there as the potential basis of friendly relations in the long term with the U.S., assuming strategic and nuclear issues are resolved. Thank you. Yeah, I, let me try to answer this as briefly as I can. There is an assumption, and I, forgive me for talking about ideology. I, that's, that's my field, not medicine. There is this assumption that if, if North Koreans engage the U.S., that they somehow will change. Uh, I'm not sure that that's a good assumption. I'm sure those programs are effective, but I think we've overlooked the fact that North Korea has literally thousands of times more contacts of a similar nature with China. Uh, there is a huge uh, expat North Korean community in, in China. It has access to how to run computers, how to do just about anything uh, that frankly, North Korea wants to do. It's all there in China. So the notion that somehow North Korea is so isolated that all we need to do is break in from the U.S. side and that they don't have access to technology unless we give it to them, these are views I think that we should discard. They're just not – they don't square with reality. But the, the problem is – and the other thing is uh, when you asked for about humanitarian assistance, obviously U.S. aid – uh, food aid made a huge difference. One of the things that concerns me is, though, that we are increasingly using our private sector as instruments of policy. The private sector should not be seen as an asset for policy. Uh, that's what North Koreans do. Uh, it's called, pri it's called uh, common front uh, strategy. You, uh, but un unfortunately, we, use, we have been using our, our private sector for, for, uh, as an instrument of policy. Most of the U.S. aid to North Korea has been, in fact, taxpayers' money. And that's one of the reasons why the government controls it. It has to control it if it's taxpayers' money. Uh, most, and and that's, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Purely private sector funded programs should not be interfered with. On the other hand, if, if the private sector, as NGOs increasingly do, and in South Korea too, by the way, uh, most of that NGO money is, is government money. Uh, if, the, if the private sector wants to take the government's money, it's going to have to take the government's control. Uh, and we've seen over the last few decades a, a genuine breakdown, I think, in the distinctions between private and, and public. And I would, you know, so. Uh, in short, it has, has been effective. I think the U.S.'s uh, generosity with food assistance has made a huge difference, especially in the late 90s. But I, I really would like to get away from the notion that somehow the private sector can be used as an instrument to change North Korea. We have a different function here. And in closing, let me just tell you one other thing. Eugene Bell could not run in the United States. We had to outsource our uh, acquisition of materials and shipping and everything else uh, in, in 2000 because the, the, the regulations involved in shipping the kinds of things even for tuberculosis are so, would be so draconian uh, that, uh, that you, you just couldn't run a program. Okay. Uh, yes, way in the back, uh, next to last row.
Thank you. Um, my name is Sean Tan, and I'm a journalist with AFP. Um, my question would be primarily to Mr. Banda or to Ms. Lee. Um, the, uh, what you're touching upon with U.S. policy, how do you assess the U.N. statement last week? Um, North Korea was quite happy about the phrasing of it, at least from their public statements. Uh, could this be a step back for, for U.S. policy uh, toward North Korea? Well, I'd say it's a setback in the sense that we wanted a full-throated Chinese denunciation. And it's pretty obvious that statement reflects at least Chinese, and I think as Ted, maybe Ted indicated, perhaps Russian as well may have been a little more hesitant. So in that sense, I do think it frustrated administration policy. They clearly have been pushing the Chinese pretty hard on this, and the Chinese have been very careful in what they've said, denouncing what happened, but being relatively careful in terms of assessing blame. I really don't have have anything to add. I, the one thing I would say, look, I do have something to add, is that um, is that the U.S. and the ROK set very high expectations of what was going to happen, and they did that in part uh, because they were trying to meet what they call the demands of the ROK public. Um, the problem with setting the bar so high that it can't be reached is that then the public is disappointed with the outcome. So I, I, it's very easy being outside of government to say that uh, they shouldn't have set the bar so high. But I think even with uh, the Chinese reluctance to review the investigation report, there were some very strong signals there that it was going to be very difficult to win China's uh, compliance. Uh, yes, here on the first row. Testing. Okay, it works. Thank you, Nicole Finneman, Korea Economic Institute. Dr. Linton, uh, thank you for your presentation. Uh, briefly, the incidence of tuberculosis in North Korea, geographically speaking, is is pretty universal. Or if you could comment on um, how it vary, possible variations in in sort of regions, and then also in the last year and a half or. The times that you've been in the last two years, have you noticed, um, particularly since 2009, any um, outside of tuberculosis change in health or nourishment, just in anecdotal um, experience? Thank you. Uh, tuberculosis is, is obviously widespread. It's all over the country. I don't think it congregates in particular areas other than if you have high densities of mines and uh, factories where people work in close quarters and, and with poor ventilation you would tend to have more TB. So we are given the northwest because there's about a third of the population there. Traditionally our work was uh, divided uh, from the World Health Organizations. They did the rest of the country for a, for a number of reasons. We were requiring site visits for instance. But uh, no one really knows how much TB is there. Uh, as they don't allow uh, random sampling. Uh, however, we are able to collect very intrusive information about the people that we actually have under treatment. I think we probably are able to bring more information uh, about North Korean TB patients out of the country than you could imagine getting from your local hospital here in, in the States, for instance. Uh, so um, that's that. It, as far as, as the medical situation is concerned, Unlike food, which can be addressed with uh, rather easily if you have the resources, medicine is a system. 
what we call modern medicine is really not just hospitals and doctors and equipment, but it's the it's the infrastructure to support them. And uh, North Korea's uh, medical system has been uh, suffering. It's a universal health care system that has grown, they've gone broke. So if you want to study what happens when uh, a universal health care system goes broke, I think North Korea is a great place to start. Uh, but trying to put it back online, obviously, is, 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 a, is a challenge. And not a whole lot of effort or a whole lot of progress has been made because uh, arguably, I think you can't put a broken universal health care system back on- online. We try to strengthen specific sectors in that society, particularly the diagnosis and treatment of TB. And you can bring certain functions back online, but to, uh, to bring it back online pervasively uh, would, be, uh, would probably cost uh, far more than anyone could afford. Yes, here in the second row. Hi, my name is Chen Hi, I'm with Chinese Media Net. Uh, I have a question for Mr. Linton. You mentioned in your talk that uh, North Korea entered the stage of uh, national survival in the end of 1970s. If you are familiar with Chinese history, you know that at that time, China also started its uh, comprehensive national reform and opened up to the world. And now China is doing very well, survived very well. So why uh, China is not able to p- persuade its neighbor to take the similar development pass, and then my follow-up question is to what extent do you think China can really influence North Korea? For this second question, I hope I can also get uh, Ms. Lee and uh, Mr. Ben Lowe's answer on that. Thank you. I would like to answer your question with a question. If during the Cultural Revolution, if there had been another China south of China, with twice the population and 40 times the, uh, the, the gross national product, do you think China would have risked opening its economy? I think none of us really knows exactly how much clout uh, Beijing has in North Korea. Yeah, you know, the the primary Chinese influence would be through its aid, both food and energy. On the other hand, you know the the Juche philosophy is not just directed against the West; it's directed against other countries, which would include China. You know, the, the relationship between the North and China has been close. Nevertheless, it has not always been an easy one. So I think that's one reason why China is somewhat hesitant to use whatever clout it has, because it's simply not a question of sending an emissary to Pyongyang and telling Kim Jong-il what to do. It's a question of trying to cajole and to encourage and to move. And clearly, the Chinese have encouraged North Korea to adopt. And when he's visited, they brought him to Shanghai. I mean, he's visited clearly a lot of the areas of economic growth. He's not unaware of that. And to some degree, I think what we see with Kaesong and other things is an attempt on North Korea's part to promote some economic growth while trying to limit any potential political contagion. Clearly, China has gone far further, and I assume is continuing to make those encouragements in North Korea. Um, the only thing I have to add is, first of all, on the the people-to-people level to reiterate what Dr. Linton already said, which is there are 
hundreds uh, of, if not thousands, of North Koreans inside the DPRK. They have access to information there that if there is going to be any kind of evolution of the DPRK government, that's where the information is going to come from. It's not going to come from us. Uh, and in, in terms of coercive power, first of all, I don't think it's there. And uh, as much as we'd like it to be. But most importantly, I think that uh, we have to respect the, the China's interest in the DPRK and in maintaining the DPRK. Now, we always say that. We always say, oh, yes, well, they want stability on their border. But and then we say they should really do what we want them to do. You have to drop the butt out of there. Because that but is actually meaningless. And I think what's important is that we get ourselves understanding the Chinese perspective uh, fluently enough so that when we act, ask it to act against the DPRK, it, uh, we are not, in fact, pushing it into a corner uh, or, or pushing it into solidarity with the DPRK. Certainly what happened around the Chonan was that the pressure that we put on, on China made it move closer to the DPRK. So, and I think that's because we failed to understand its uh, overarching interests. Could I, could I add one? I love ironies. And... Uh, as I said, one of the things that I find fascinating is that as countries try to combat North Korea, they adapt strategies that appear like North Korea's. Uh, the U.S. and South Korea are supposed to be capitalist countries. But in fact, it's the Chinese private sector that has the most capitalist-type uh, advantages and access to North Korea. The South Korean program, I'm not sure that the South Koreans would lose money if you tab tabulated the amount of money that has gone from the taxpayer to, to create that zone in the first place. South Korea's contacts with, the U with North Korea are heavily uh, private sector, government partnerships, but really what it means is they're government-managed economic relationships. Uh, and those companies are guaranteed a certain amount of insurance by the taxpayer. Uh, whereas ch if a Chinese businessman goes to North Korea and loses his shirt, uh, nobody's going to bail him out. Uh, as a result of that kind of uh, private sector initiative, the Chinese impact on North Korea's economy and probably, uh, arguably, as Karen said, eventually on North Korean society is going to be much higher. So we have hamstrung our private sector uh, with our regulations so that in many ways we appear more like a government like North Korea that has total control and total management of its private sector, at least in terms of our relationship to North Korea. And that, to me, is a fundamental mistake. Can, can I just add one thing? I'm in complete agreement with everything you're saying, but just to clarify that the business that inter-Korean business that's been suspended is outside of Kaesong. Kaesong businesses continue, and I'm not aware that the ones uh, South Korean companies investing outside of Kaesong have that insurance they don't. policy. Yeah. Right here in the second row. Controlling on proliferation. Uh, this is for Doug. I'm just wondering, do you think it's a concern for South Korea that the U.S. can't um, go on this sort of diplomatic offensive and really try and engage North Korea? You know, 
the US not wanting to force South Korea into that kind of uh, pattern of engagement? Thanks. Well, the, the, I mean, I remember years ago the South Koreans, at least some expressed to me, fear that the U.S. would open and have a very uh, vibrant relationship with the North and they might feel left behind, which I thought was a fantasy. The, the strength of the U.S.-South Korean relationship was so strong, both economic and cultural. I mean, the number of you know, Korean-Americans they're South, you know, from South Korea and have families there, very, very strong. I mean, many South Koreans, their children are born here. Those ties are very strong. Clearly, the U.S., yeah, I mean, the, if you look at kind of the governments in Seoul and Washington, very often they've gone in cycles. I mean, George W. Bush and Kim Dae-jung didn't get along very well. I mean, you know, you find, you know, the, it's clear that they didn't particularly care for the Nomu Hyun administration either. Today it looks like the Obama and, you know, the, the Lee administrations get along pretty well. Uh, so I th it does make sense to have a coordinated policy. I think not only Seoul and Washington, but also Tokyo. I mean, there, there's turbulence in, the, in the, the Japanese political system and the whole issue of those who were kidnapped makes it much harder, I think, to kind of coordinate and get good policy out of uh, Japan, a very emotional issue, which I think has clouded some of the larger issues. Nevertheless, I don't think that South Korea gains from the U.S. having no contact with the North. I mean, this doesn't strike me as a long-term advantage for anyone in the region. Uh, maybe to some degree in Seoul they view it, the U.S. if to the extent we have to go through them to have contact with the North, but I think over the long term that's a very unsatisfactory arrangement. Okay. Yes, on the aisle. Thank you. How are working for the South Korean newspaper, Joseon Ilbo, which Karen, you cited? Mm -hmm. Well, I, uh, I would like to pose a question to Karen. I respected your or opinions uh, until today, but it is very difficult to agree with your idea today. First of all, it seems that you haven't realized the great meaning of the uh, Chonan incident, which North Korea killed 46 soldiers, the largest killing since 1950s. And I think the South Korean government's sanction is a kind of a very minimum uh, measure against North Korea. And I, I would like to remind you that the South Korea's sanction actually started after South North Korea uh, killed South Korean tourists in Gumgang, Gumgang Mountain, where the housewives were killed by North Koreans. She had been to there just for uh, touring. And uh, secondly, I'd like to ask a question. What kind of uh, engagement are you uh, talking about? Where South Korean government... Uh, Last for 10 years, South Korean government, they tried engagement policy uh, with uh, North Korea. Even South Korean former president Kim Dae-jung bribed $500 million to North Korean Kim Jong-il. But uh, what, was, uh, what was the result of, the, of that kind of, that kind of uh, engagement policy? North Korea, they made their nuclear program, and they tested two times, and uh, they negated all of their promises regarding the nuclear process. So I would like to hear what kind of engagement policy are you talking about? Thank you. Well, I, I appreciate your question, which seems to be primarily at the uh, ideological level and not necessarily uh, closely connected to the things that I, that I said, but trying to sort out the exact parts of my presentation with which you're in disagreement, I would say that... Uh, my biggest censure of the South Korean government has been the interruption of privately funded humanitarian assistance 
to the DPRK. Dr. Linton is right that, particularly under the previous administration, almost all of the South Korean NGO assistance going to the DPRK was publicly funded. And certainly the government has a right to suspend that publicly funded assistance. But South Korean NGOs have been barred from sending assistance that they have purchased with private funds. And they actually have to pay warehouse fees to store those goods uh, because they're not allowed to send them. And that actually took place before the Chonan. That took place uh, after the test in April 2009. I don't see any purpose in suspending humanitarian aid to the DPRK. I don't see that it gets you what you want, whatever it is you want. I don't think that punishing ordinary people is ethically pure, I mean, an ethical decision to make. And uh, I I don't see how the Korean people themselves are allowing this to take place, frankly speaking. I really don't. Now, the difference in scale, the way I... uh, uh, somewhat uh, uh, cheated with my slide when I used that very big number from the number of excess deaths in Iraq, is that the South Korean NGOs are small scale. So cutting back their assistance is actually not a matter of life and death for uh, the same number of people as we were talking about in the case of Iraq. But I still think that the South Korean government should have a principle of absolutely separating humanitarian concerns from other concerns. This is something that as soon as the Lee Myung-bak administration came into power, it said reciprocity. We are going to live by reciprocity. And the very first thing it did was say humanitarian assistance is based on progress on the nuclear issue. They were mixing apples and oranges right from the start. If they wanted to uh, uh, make government-funded aid contingent on uh, improvements in monitoring, that would have been reciprocity. But to make food contingent on nuclear progress, that's not reciprocity. So... Uh, I could go on, but obviously I uh, have picked my one topic. But we can talk afterwards about your assumption that I am uh, talking about engagement for engagement's sake. What I'm saying is that sanctions alone have proved uh, uh, counterproductive, and so that's not what we should be pursuing. Any other comments? If not, unfortunately, we have reached the end of our allotted time. Uh, Before we close today, I want to express my personal thanks to Linda Herzog and the conference staff here at Cato for putting on an excellent event once again. That is something that we're proud of at the Institute. The conference department does a terrific job with a large number of events. Uh, You're all invited to a reception upstairs uh, following the uh, forum here, and uh, our speakers will be available to chat with you informally in that setting. Let's express uh, our thanks to our excellent panel today.